If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Support for Green Dreamer comes from our listener patrons, as well as our Green Dreamer planners that you can check out at greendreamer.com shop. To support this independent show and join our online community starting at just $2 per month, you can head to greendreamer.com support to learn more. We put a ton of our military resources into protecting the fossil fuel supply, and we yap about energy independence as an excuse to increase fracking in our own communities with all those health risks. And so we're willing to put people in our own country at risk, people worldwide at risk, create wars just to protect oil. That was Dr. Mark Vossler, a full-time cardiologist and president of the Seattle, Washington chapter of Physicians for Social Responsibility. Stay tuned as we're about to explore why we have to talk more about our nuclear arms race within the context of sustainability, how environmental injustice plays out within the field of medicine and healthcare, and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. I have a, a long-term and a passion for outdoor activities, hiking, biking, fishing. Um, so I've always valued the natural world. Uh, and I share that with my wife. I, I think probably the reason we got together in the first place is we like doing those sorts of things. There's always been a conservation side. However, the climate issue, when you start looking at it carefully, you realize it's more than just preserving trees or animal environments. This This crisis actually threatens human beings. And so the parts of me that made me want to be a doctor and care for people and take care of health problems also motivated me to work on climate change. I don't I don't necessarily want to be a climate activist, but I feel I have to because if if I'm I'm a great dad, great husband and great cardiologist and take good care of my family and my patients, but we start suffering humanitarian disasters right and left. 
uh, within a generation because we failed to act. I didn't really accomplish much in, in the world. It's not that I'm going to give up my work as a, a physician, but I feel compelled to act on climate. Right. And I do feel like increasingly people across all industries, they, they like you may not initially have wanted to have to talk about climate change, but it just increasingly is something that uh, we know is going to affect society and all sectors across the board. Right. So there's really that intersectionality of how climate change is going to be impacting everyone and everything. And therefore, people across all fields may feel like they have a bigger stake in um, speaking and acting on it now. That's absolutely, absolutely true. What's amazed me when I first got active, we would have a, you know, a information table at an event, and a few people would kind of sign up, and very few people would show up to a meeting or do anything after that. Now, so many people are contacting me through the organizations I'm working with on this weekly, uh, and now the challenge is for me because I have a limited amount of time, is to find enough for people to do to keep them engaged. There's a lot of interest out there. That's definitely a reassuring sign um, that people with such great authority in our society, such as physicians yourself, are getting more and more engaged in this. And I feel like oftentimes climate skeptics resist these dire predictions of the catastrophe that climate change can bring and dismiss these messages by cherry picking instances of when past predictions did not come right. true. But I think through yeah. the lens of public health, it becomes very clear that this isn't a prediction of the future. This has already been a part of our recent history and is a part of our present day. So in light of this, what do we need to know about how climate change has already impacted our public health and how does it impact people living in different places differently? Well, there's a lot there. Number one, I'm going to take on this ability to predict what things are going to happen. It's imperfect. We know that the warming world changes weather patterns, increases intensity of storms. Doesn't mean that there wouldn't be storms if there wasn't global warming. We know that extreme weather events have an adverse human impact. People are injured. They lose their homes. Uh, likewise, in, in my state, a big deal is the forest fires. We lucked out this summer. It was not that bad a fire season, but the previous three were awful. And people will say, well, it's more than just warming. True. There are a lot of factors that go into fires, and there were fires before industrial times. But the risk and the intensity of fires has increased by warmer, hotter, drier summers. Fires are kind of a good thing to look at in terms of how climate change is affecting us in the here and now. People are injured directly. They lose their homes. They might die in the fire. The air quality can be bad hundreds of miles away. In fact, this summer, we had a, there was a fire in Siberia that had smoke and particulate matter coming, blowing into uh, the Seattle area. This smoke, this particulate matter in the air increases the risk of heart attack, stroke, asthma. So these are not, not benign events. They're having real effects on real people now. When you look at the future, you know that there's a higher probability of fires and extreme weather events because of global warming. You can't say that any particular season it's going to happen or not going to happen. It's just statistically more likely. In public health, we exercise a precautionary principle. I'll give you an example. If someone has a greater than 5% risk of having a heart attack or stroke in 10 years, we put them on a cholesterol pill. Well, 95% of folks that take that pill would not have had a heart attack or a stroke in the next decade if they didn't take it. 
similarly, when there's a probability of severe bad things happening to people down the road because of a warming climate, we need to act now to prevent that. And I don't have a hard time you know, convincing people to take their statin drug mm -hmm. uh, if they're at risk of, of a heart attack. Well, the, the analogy is that the, the human race is at risk of a major, quote, heart attack-like event due to the health impacts of climate change. We ought to be have, exercising the precautionary principle, treating the planet, so to speak, uh, to prevent that. I think it's really profound. I believe you talked about how uh, looking at the cases that the emergency room has received and the changes, uh, the shifts in cases that the emergency room has received in terms of what sorts of cases can be tied directly or indirectly to climate change. Yeah, directly uh, heat-related illness. And, you know, if you have a warm, hot summer, and it, it's particularly risky in areas that experience a, a big jump in temperatures where people aren't acclimated, uh, the folks that are most Vulnerable are the chronically ill and the uh, the elderly are vulnerable to dehydration and heat stroke. And I've taken care of patients who have had actually heart attacks precipitated by heat stroke. These things happen. They're happening now. If mean temperatures rise and peak temperatures in the summer rise, there will be more heat-related illnesses. The other thing that's increasing is is kidney disease, heat-related kidney disease. And this is being described fairly recently. Uh, outdoor workers, agricultural workers in warmer climates are particularly prone to, to kidney damage. And often, sometimes these are relatively young, healthy, vigorous you know, agricultural workers are ending up having kidney failure. It's not in my area of expertise, but my, my colleagues in nef nephrology, kidney specialists, assure me that this is a real phenomenon. It's worsening. It's particularly bad in Central America, South America. There is an increased risk, particularly in the southern parts of our country as well, of, of heat-related kidney injury. There was an article in the New England Journal of Medicine just this last month. Actually, an entire, the entire issue was devoted to climate change, but there's an article on heat-related kidney disease, which is, again, a relatively newly described phenomenon. In addition to these chronic conditions and also more emergent con conditions that may come from things like natural disasters, uh, we also know that with warmer temperatures, rates of violence also increase. So there may also be more emergent conditions or cases to do with that as well. Right. There's no question that hot summer nights are associated with increased violent crime. Also, if you have a food shortage is either due to flooding and extreme weather and flooding is more likely with the warming world, but and drought, on the other hand, is more common. Either threat to the food supply increases risk of violence within a country, civil wars. If you increase the number of civil wars, you could increase the risk of wars between countries because there's this tendency to just get involved in other people's business. Mm. And if you have uh, people who are armed with weapons of mass destruction, nuclear weapons in particular, lined up against each other over a drought-precipitated civil war. We don't necessarily have to wait till the worst effects of climate change kill us all. We could kill ourselves because we're fighting over it. Right. Does that, does that make sense? Does that, that issue make sense? Absolutely. And I really yeah. do want to touch on that because I know you've also been outspoken about your stance of being anti-nuclear. What yeah. exactly solidified your viewpoints on this and how does nuclear relate to public health and climate change? Right. 
it makes sense that somebody that's concerned uh, about uh, the risk of nuclear weapons could be also concerned about climate change because you're thinking about things that threaten all of humanity. I've been engaged in the anti-nuclear movement since I was in college. That long-standing concern and activism was part of why I got so active on climate change because they're like even if we got rid of nuclear weapons, if we kill ourselves with our fossil fuel addiction, we're no better off. The military planners look at climate change and they call it a, a, a threat multiplier. There, there's a firm belief that there's going to be an increased risk of warfare as the temperatures rise. So even military hawks ought to be paying attention to climate change. Even the people that would disagree with on the nuclear weapons issue ought to be agreeing with me on the climate change issue. The other concern I have, uh, you know, when I look at both issues together, is we're spending a tremendous amount of money uh, on weapons that we ought not use. And uh, humanity as a whole would be better off, safer and healthier if we redirected that money toward solving the climate crisis, increasing the use of renewable energy, for instance. We'd be better off redirecting that money toward decreasing global economic inequity. So it seems immoral that we're putting all this money into dangerous weapon systems when there are people dying every day from the results of poverty, people dying episodically already now from extreme weather events, heat-related illnesses, kidney disease, particulate pollution. All these things are killing people right now, and we could, we could redirect that money from weapons of mass destruction to clean energy to better public health. Again, I think our current current uh, priorities are absolutely immoral. I've just been learning a lot more about our military industrial complex, and it's just really mind-boggling to think about how they profit off of continuing really interventionist strategies to international mm. policy. And right. of course, every case is different. And there's still a lot I have yet to learn about this. But I've heard in general that oftentimes we're entering these wars without a clear purpose. And they actually end up leaving the people there obviously worse off with a lot of the deaths of innocent people and civilians. But also it it puts our national security at risk as well, because when right. people on the other side of the world are being attacked by this country that's coming in to interfere with them, then they're also going to have more animosity towards everyone from this place as well. Yeah. So when you think about areas where there are, say, dictators oppressing their own people, we cherry pick the ones we want to go after. And we don't necessarily go after the most oppressive dictator. We go after the ones that have access to oil. So it shouldn't strike us as you know, any mystery why there are wars in Iraq, why there's a threatened war with Iran, why we're giving military aid to a completely immoral uh, Saudi royal family pushing the killing in Yemen. And, I, and by the way, I don't think there's any good guys in that war, but we shouldn't be promoting it. It's a humanitarian disaster. And so we put a ton of our military resources into protecting the fossil fuel supply. And we yap about energy independence as an excuse to increase fracking in our own communities with all those health risks. And so we are willing to put people in our own country at risk, people worldwide at risk, create wars just to protect oil. It's a huge subsidy to the fossil fuel industry through the military that we are giving. If we withdrew that subsidy, look at the money we would have to solve, actually, the climate crisis. 
I feel like we have three existential crises right now. So we have obviously the climate crisis, we have our sixth mass extinction, and then the third one, I really agree with you as well, that we have this nuclear arms race that could just wipe so many people out at once if we were to reach that level of tension to enter into nuclear war. And I feel like among environmentalists, we're largely aware of the first two, but we don't talk about um, what goes on in the military, why we're spending so much money to perpetuate wars around the world, and the impacts that this is having on innocent people, people within our countries as well, and also on the environment when, you know, these wars are able to literally just wipe out entire ecosystems in seconds. And of course, all these are related as well. They're not separate issues. But in my mind, these are are three existential threats. Yeah, I would I would add economic inequity to your your list of threats in that it's perpetuated by our current energy system and our current military orientation, adding to the immor- immorality of what we're currently doing. And, and don't get me wrong, I am, I am not an anti-capitalist. I think that a well-regulated business economy can do a lot of good things. But if profit is the only motivator, and there's no government regulation for the greater good, a lot of bad things will happen if all you care about is, 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 is profit. I actually think that our military protection of the fossil fuel industry is actually corrupt um, and should be viewed as that. Now, that that doesn't make me a socialist or a communist. It makes me a realist. There's no free market in energy. It's rigged. It's rigged because the powerful have bought off the politicians, pure and simple. That's not an anti-capitalist statement. That's not a socialist statement. Some people in movement say we have to tear down capitalism. I understand why they feel that way, because... Our, quote, free market economy is not truly a free market. It's rigged for the powerful. We need to regulate the hell out of it. And we need to pull all subsidies for fossil fuels. And we need to stop providing protection for Saudi Arabia and for uh, global oil companies. We need to do that right away. First step. Well, you are the president of Washington's chapter of Physicians for Social Responsibility. How do you see physicians being able to influence and shape our society, as well as the systemic decisions being made by our our political leaders and corporate executives? I don't want to sound like I'm bragging here, (laughs) but when polls are taken, the polls of like who are, what are the trusted voices, trusted professions? Nurses and doctors are always in the top three. Almost always nurses beat doctors. So I'm, I'm, I'll, that humbles me a little bit. And I think the trust is the general public realizes people go into nursing, they go into medicine because they want to help people. And so they, they come from a place of assuming the good first. So when I go to a climate rally wearing my white coat and step up to the microphone and say, as a physician, I'm concerned about the health impacts of climate change people listen. It's credible. And so I've been very, very pleased with the ability of that I've had, along with my colleagues in, in, in PSR, to have an impact. Certainly in the state of Washington, we've had an outsized impact in the coalitions we've worked with. And we get people calling us pretty much weekly saying, can you get a doctor to testify at this hearing? We're having a rally in a week at uh, the King County Council building. Uh, We need you out there with signs. 
it's very gratifying to be useful. On the other hand, well, not really on the other hand, physicians and nurses have an obligation to speak out on issues that affect public and global health. If we only focus on one patient at a time, we're allowing a lot of adverse health consequences to occur. So we can't just treat one patient at a time. Not that I, you know, I, I still, I practice medicine every day. I'm a full-time cardiologist. I have an obligation to the folks that come see me for help, but I also have an obligation to society as a whole. In an article that you co-wrote in Seattle Times, you said, historically, many issues have had to reach a tipping point to receive forceful, clear, and unwavering support from our medical profession. Firearm control, bicycle helmets, and cigarette smoking are examples of important health issues that, that had to go through processing within our culture for medical professionals to collectively and unambiguously own the need to advocate on behalf of our patients, end quote. Do you think that we've reached that tipping point for climate change where the medical community is coming together to send a unified message in support of climate action? And how can we collectively overcome any resistance from industries that have spread misinformation campaigns in order to maintain the status quo? The answer is absolutely. We have hit the tipping point. Uh, about four or five years ago, I brought a resolution to the State Medical Association, the Washington State Medical Association, merely stating that we have a public position that climate change is a health risk and that state, local, and federal governments should adopt policies to mitigate the effects of climate change. That was it. Simple. It was hugely controversial. It finally passed. Last year, there was an initiative on the ballot that ultimately lost, but it went back to the State Medical Association and asked them to endorse this specific carbon, it basically was a carbon tax, uh, state-level carbon tax initiative. That was controversial because a lot of the you know, established folks in the organization said, you know, we just don't do that. It's outside the realm of medicine, really, and but it passed. The, the, the endorsement of the initiative passed in part because little did I know the uh, president of the organization was on my side. I didn't know until afterwards. Fast forward a year, we put out a quarterly newsletter. This is from the WSMA, the State Medical Association, to membership. And the summer issue was completely devoted to the issue of climate change. You can see the speed at which it's changing. The New England Journal of Medicine in August, devoted an entire issue to climate change, Art, you know, multiple articles in one issue on, on health and climate change. The AMA has di di divested from fossil fuels. The American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Academy of Family Physicians, um, thinking of the other professional societies, the Obstetrics and Gynecology, I'm, I'm blanking on ACOG as their initials, the ACP, American College of Physicians, they all have uh, positions on climate change as a health issue and calling for collective action. So the in a short period of time, in, in the time that I've been involved, I'm seeing colleague after colleague, association, organization after organization come out saying we're going to act on it. We have organizations like Healthcare Without Harm who are focusing on the healthcare industry itself, trying to get hospitals and clinics to reduce their own carbon footprint to lead the way. This stuff wasn't happening five years ago. 
or where it was happening was happening in a very minor way. This is all growing. The health voice is, is, is really, really coming out strong. And this is really part of why I'm optimistic. I, I actually think we can beat this thing. That definitely means a lot coming from you. Um, low income and communities of color are bearing a disproportionate share of the burden of being at the front lines of facing the effects of climate change and other environmental issues as well. How are you seeing this systemic injustice playing out in the field of medicine, especially when it comes to uh, patients' medical bills, dealing with health insurance, or ability to seek out quality care for serious conditions? Part of why PSR or Washington PSR focuses also on economic inequity is exactly that. Because economic inequity ties our other areas of focus together in a way. Frontline communities absolutely are at higher risk for suffering from the effects of climate change. In fact, they already are. If you look in my, in my own city of Seattle, South Park community, predominantly people of color and definitely lower income uh, versus Laurelhurst, predominantly white, predominantly wealthy, actually all wealthy, six miles apart, 10-year difference in life expectancy. Wow. And when you talk about morality, I, I brought that up a couple of times. It's immoral to let that exist. So we can't just work on climate change and ignore economic inequity. And we can't just work on economic inequity and ignore climate change. We've got to work on both. If we care about the health of every person in the world, we have to work on climate change. We have to focus some of those efforts on the frontline communities because they are hurting the worst and they're being affected already. And they're often doing the least. Often, yeah, correct. To contribute. Correct. <laughs> correct. If you look at it, the carbon footprint of a wealthy person in the United States is much higher than the carbon footprint of a poor person. Man, there's so much here. I, 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 I could go on and on, but we, we have to pay attention to that. There has been very, very little done to focus real collective energy nationwide on vulnerable communities. Look at the Flint water crisis, for instance. Now, while that's not a direct climate effect, it, it shows that if, you're, if your city is black and poor, you get ignored. And we got to bat that down. The danger, and I'm choosing my words carefully here, the danger as the climate movement of only focusing on frontline communities is that wealthy white folks will decide that it doesn't affect them so they don't need to care. And we need to get the message. Actually, it's going to affect everybody. It's going to hurt everybody. Um, the longer you wait, the more people it's going to affect. So you're not immune just because you're rich. But it's going to affect poor people first, and it's going to affect them harder. I, In my messaging, I struggle every day. How do I get this through to people? Do I, I have to tell the truth. I have to say that vulnerable communities, low-income communities, people of color, are at higher risk. On the other hand, I don't want anybody out there to think that they're not at risk, too. If you wait long enough, your kids and your grandkids are going to be suffering because of the warming world. I just recently talked to the campaign director of Ensure Our Future, Peter Boshard. It's a campaign targeting our major U.S. and international insurance companies that still are investing in and insuring hundreds of billions of dollars in fossil fuels. I checked this public database and saw that even our major health insurance companies that should have our public health in mind are still investing in the fossil fuel industry as well, including uh, Aidna, Kaiser Permanente. United Healthcare, Cigna, and so on and so on. 
Traditionally, what has been the relationship between doctors and health insurance companies in terms of who has more leverage over who? And what are your thoughts on what our best ways are to influence the um, investment decisions being made by these health insurance companies? Health insurance companies, they, they rank somewhere between rent collecting landlords and highway robbers, <laughs> right? They, they, health insurance companies really serve no useful purpose. I'll say that again. Health insurance companies serve no useful purpose, I, I guess, except to provide profit to their shareholders. So you pay a dollar into, or your employer pays a dollar into the, to the insurance company. From that dollar, they try really hard to hang on to it, number one, and not pay for your health care. Number two, they make sure they have to pay employees and they have to you know, send profit back to their shareholders. The business model means that healthcare spending isn't really spent on healthcare. Does that make sense? It makes yeah. sense to me because I think about this all the time. I, I get really, really angry when people use the term healthcare and what they're talking about is the insurance industry. I actually am an advocate at a minimum for a strong public option being added onto the ACA, at least as a first step. It, you know, if the insurance companies are so damn good, why why couldn't they have federal competition? And see why not? I actually would much prefer single payer. I can be convinced that we should take, take it one step at a time, I suppose. But ultimately, I think we just should we just need universal coverage. We need to make healthcare a human right, and we need to not treat health insurance company profits as an inalienable right. To your point about, you know, really questioning the point of our current health insurance, I read a study from the Kaiser Family Foundation that found that the insured were a bit more likely to actually declare bankruptcy than the uninsured. And they say, you know, most probably thought their insurance protected them from medical costs. They weren't prepared to pay for unexpected deductible and co-insurance costs. Almost a third weren't aware that a particular hospital or service wasn't a part of their plan. And one in four found that the insurance denied their claims. Yeah, so. I see. I, in practice, I see this every day. I see people who they buy the insurance that they can afford out of their personal budget, and they therefore make compromises and they buy a high deductible plan, and meaning that you know they're at risk. And it doesn't necessarily take a medical catastrophe. I mean, if you have a high deductible plan and you get admitted with a small heart attack at my hospital and you get a couple of stents and you go home the next day, you know, relatively short stay in the hospital, you could be out five plus thousand dollars in one hit. If you have, if you have a $5,000 deductible, you just ate it up. People that can only afford to buy these bare bones insurance plans also probably don't have five grand sitting in the bank that they can just pull out and, and spend on uh, a catastrophic event. Well, as you've noted in the article that you wrote, increasingly the iconic photo that defines this climate crisis has changed from the polar bear on a shrinking ice floe to a child wheezing for breath in one of our emergency rooms. What does this change signal to you? And what do you think it'll take for us to be able to wake our society up to seeing the very real and direct impacts that climate change is having on on us today so that we can finally pull together to redirect the path that we go forward on together? I think 
the healthcare frame of reference is useful in terms of motivating people who aren't outright deniers or dismissive. And since the majority of Americans understand that the climate crisis is real and they understand that it's human caused, if they also understand the human health impacts of failing to act, they will become more likely to act. So I, I like to focus my message on the middle ground, the folks that aren't already activists. Because the people that are already activists, they get it. They already know my message. Uh, and the people that are outright deniers, I'm not going to sway them. But people that are maybe not convinced that we should take action at a state, local, and federal level, the understanding of the health impacts can make a big can make a big difference. And I'm really hopeful there because, as I said, I'm not just seeing, you know, doctors and nurses is, is stepping up, but I'm I'm seeing more of the people I know. I had a, a non-medical friend of mine just spontaneously say to me in the locker room at the gym where I work out today, he goes, so Mark, how are things going on climate change? I didn't know he was interested. People would never just, just start chatting with me about it a few years ago. I mean, they knew I worked on it, but it, it's not something they wanted to talk about at the gym. So I, I think the awareness is, this, this is, again, this is part of what gives me hope, is the tipping point has been reached. People want action. People want action. And since we have the technology, we have the technology to reduce emissions already with renewables. All we needed was the political will. And we know that elected officials don't lead. They follow. They follow public opinion. Public opinion has tipped. We will get things done. With all of this in mind, what do you think we as individuals can do at this point that can have the largest positive impact in continuing to influence the outcomes of our public and ecological health? Yeah, number one, talk to your friends, neighbors, and family. Let them know you care. There's a fair chance that they care too. They've just not talked about it. Two, talk to your elected officials. It takes so little time to write a letter to your member of Congress, to your state legislators, and a simple five minutes of your time saying, I care about climate change. You need to act. That's a big deal. That puts the issue on their radar screen. If there is a specific policy, specific bill in your state legislature or in Congress, write to Congress about that. We need to take the lead. Events like the, the climate strike, go to those things because that by itself, the climate strike is not going to solve it. But it, that image that a lot of people care, that gets into people's brains when they see people standing there holding signs, I care. Say, well, I care too. It builds the movement. So small bits of participation are huge. We've got to get people to go beyond thinking, well, about guilt, about, oh, it's because I didn't change my light bulbs, or it's because I can't afford to buy a, a, a Chevy Bolt. And I'm still driving my, you know, 15-year-old clunker that's spewing, you know, get off the guilt. You do what you can in your, in your, personal, in your personal space. Sure, shut the lights off. Et cetera, et cetera. But the climate isn't changing because I took too long a shower today. The climate's changing because Congress hasn't acted and because we, we are subsidizing the fossil fuel industry and we're propagating this. That's where we need to take political action and small steps from a lot of people make a huge difference. You're listening to Green Dreamer. I'm your host, Kamea Shane, and we're now going into a mindful musical intermission before closing off with our final five. 
getting stronger While the ice is wearing thin Come out of the shadows So your voice can be received Don't stand on the sidelines Come fight for the air that you breathe Cause we all have the power to change Yeah, we all What's an uplifting social media account or a publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? The book that's been profound for, for me, and I got it, it's on my shelf here. <laughs> it's, uh, it's called The Hegemony How-To by Jonathan Smucker. John was uh, part of uh, Occupy Wall Street and realized how they failed to advance the movement after the initial success. So I've learned a lot about political organizing from reading that book. I'm use it day to day and the concept of not sitting there talking to your own little group and wringing your hands but reaching out to other people motivating people who might not agree with you on every issue but saying i want to talk to you about climate change and getting other people on board building the movement that's what we need to be doing what do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired i always look at our successes and really try not to dwell on failures you know Successes. We passed a, a bunch of legislature le- legislation in the state legislature in in Washington uh, last session. There are last time I counted six carbon pricing bills active in uh, the U.S. Congress right now. I like to focus on the fact that things are actually being done and talked about, as opposed to how bad it's going to be. Because if I just think about what the world would look like in 2050 and uh, 2100 if we don't act now. It's too damn depressing. I have to take uh, heart in every little victory. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? I'm being more conscientious about what I eat. I, I'm always looking for ways that I can help my patients control their weight. And turns out I'm keeping a food diary and matching it up with my exercise. And that actually is a, a useful little tool. Also, I'm eating more vegetables that way and uh, less uh, meat, which is good for the planet. Uh, what are you working on right, right now to elevate your positive impact for our planet? Working on a couple of things. Uh, through uh, WPSR, we are resisting new fossil fuel infrastructure in our state. And there's a, uh, a, a methanol project in Tacoma. Oh, no, the methanol project's in Kalama and a liquid natural gas project in Tacoma uh, that both would have profound health impacts if they go through because they all both rely on frack gas. And so we're working on convincing our state government to not, not not permit those projects. Federally, again, I mentioned there are some carbon pricing bills in Congress, so I'm actively working on advancing the dialogue there, meeting with my members of Congress, trying to push that forward. I'd like to see a carbon price that's high enough to make a difference without compromising the EPA's ability to act. That could be a whole hour-long conversation right there. <laughs> the other thing that, that, that I'm working on is an impact at the uh, county and city level because a lot, of, a, lot, a lot of climate change mitigation would depend on transportation policies, building code uh, policies that really are the purview 
of city and county governments. And I'm really hopeful there because the county I live in, King County in Washington, is actively engaged. They're, they're not meeting their targets, but they have good intentions and they want to get there if we help them along. So uh, we, have, we have levers at every level of government that we just need to pull. And what makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? The people that care. The fact that I've said this a couple of times, the fact that I'm more people are coming up to me and asking, how can I help? That's what makes me think we will we will mitigate the worst effects. Even though some effects are already be happening now, we can limit warming to 1.5 degrees or less um, because people want to do it. Well, Green Dreamer, to learn more and stay updated on Dr. Vossler's work at Washington's Physicians for Social Responsibility, you can head to www.wpsr.org, and you can also follow him on Twitter at VosslerM1. I'll have all of this linked in the show notes as well that you can reference at greendreamer.com. Mark, if our listener would like to get involved with your work or point their doctor friends um, or people who work in the medical field towards supporting this movement of physicians championing climate action, social equity, and environmental justice, what cause to action would you like to share? One, if you're in Washington state, join WPSR. Just be part of us. Nationwide, join your local PSR chapter if you're a physician. If you don't have a local PSR chapter, Send me a message on Twitter or email me at WPSR at WPSR.org. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your incredible wealth of wisdom with us. There are certainly so many different things to think about. And I know I had a lot more questions for you, but we'll have to close off here. For now, what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Focus on the positive. Focus on that we will win because... Focusing on how we could lose is just too depressing. Take action, take small steps, and take them collectively. The biggest thing you could do if you have no time is just to talk to your friends, neighbors, and relatives and say, I care about the climate. Yeah, we are.